Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So I hope it will become evident uh, fairly quickly um, at how well the worship team just led us in, in worship. Um, there was a lot of thought given to that, and uh, my heart has been moved already. We are in a series uh, called The Way of the Cross because First Peter, where we're spending our time, is full of uh, elements of what it means to be saved, what it means to suffer, what it means to live as followers of Christ. And so as we move from the theme of salvation, which Charlie preached on last week, to a little bit more application, I'd like for you to uh, consider this quote, which I think will frame it for us. God's commands are always rooted in his grace. I, I really appreciate Nick's just bringing that to our attention so well at the beginning. Always rooted in his grace. The indicative, in other words, what God has done for us in Christ, is always the basis of the imperative, how we should live our lives. So today we are going to be looking at several imperatives, and it's very imperative that we remember what the basis of it is the basis of it, the indicative, is that we are children of God. Key verse in verse 3 that we looked at last week, I just want to bring it to our attention one more time, is verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so Jesus Christ was brought our salvation, but the Father initiated it. He dominates that verse. So that is very, very important that we remember that and that it grounds the imperatives that we see today. So today we are going to explore the so what. So if indeed we are children of the Father that brought us this living hope through Jesus, um, what does it mean to reflect that? If it were said, like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter. What, what would that, yeah, we, we use phrases like that, right? What, what does that mean in our lives? What does it mean to be children of the father? Well, it's fairly clear, I think we're going to see from the verses, that it means three things. It means hope, it means holiness, and it means reverence. So we're going to consider all three of those. Being children of the father means hope. Therefore, and I draw your attention to verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Hope is very, very closely related to faith. You could say they are cousins. But hope is faith with kind of a future tint to it. Pastor John Piper remarked that hope reminds readers that one trusts God for the future. That's not so much a definition. It's just kind of a, a uh, describing the functions of it. Hope is kind of like a persistent notification on your phone. The other day I was working at my desk and my phone pinged and I glanced over at it and it was reminding me of a future event that had totally slipped my mind. It was one of my kids' functions and uh, it was in 30 minutes and it was like 14 minutes away. And so I all of a sudden, you know, it was like I was a scurry to get there and I was very thankful for that notification of that future event. Now, preferably, I would have been aware of it uh, before 30 minutes, but I was still very happy with that notification. Hope is a little bit like that. Hope is a persistent notification of a super, like, event that is, is we are counting on that event. And it's like a persistent notification that constantly brings it up in your mind. For children of God, what is that event? The verse calls it, verse 13, calls it the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The witness of scripture is that there is divine kindness that is being stored up to us as an inheritance, an inheritance that does not get eaten away by inflation, by the way, and it is inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We saw that in verse 4 last week, and it's being kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is realized, it says it is brought to us when Jesus comes back at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you kind of follow the scope of the salvation calendar, uh, Christmas, Jesus was born. We just celebrated that not too long ago. Uh, Easter, his death and his resurrection and his glorification. Pentecost, that is the time when the Holy Spirit came down upon the church. But the big next event is the second coming of Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. As a reminder, this is when Jesus returns, not in humility, but in power. He comes not to suffer again, but to judge and to conquer, not to postpone, but to restore all things. And it is at that time that the fullness of God's kindness that he intends for us will be realized. Now, that is already at work right now in our salvation. So we are receiving the benefits of that kindness brought to us right now, but we will see it fully then. So you may think, well, that's all very well, but you're talked about hope is kind of like a notification, like something that's like constantly in our soul reminding us of this amazing event, and I'm just not feeling it. Um, Sometimes I just like forget the event. I minimize the notification. Well, unfortunately, join the club. It's awful easy to fall asleep as we wait. But thankfully, there is something in this passage that tells us what we can do about it if we are not living with that future hope as we ought to. Hope, thankfully, is a renewable energy source. Peter includes two phrases in this verse that gives us an idea of what it means for us to fight for hope, and you do have to fight for hope. And so it is possible, it is possible for us to move from oblivious to very aware. How do we do that? Part of my family's Christmas tradition is watching some version, there are many of them, of, of the Christmas carol. 
And uh, I would say most of you know the story, right? Scrooge. Uh, Scrooge becomes awake. And um, he comes from living completely unaware of any world outside his counting house to the awareness of a spiritual dimension. And he is brought to that point by being jarred awake by three spirits. By the end of that journey, Scrooge declares this, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. Well, what happened to him? He moved from oblivious to aware. So is there help for us to have a similar awakening so that we live in the present and the future all the time? The verse points out two different things. You can look at verse 14. It says, therefore, excuse me, verse 13. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Okay, that's one thing. Two, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully. Preparing your minds for action. Well, this is a phrase that's used quite a bit in Scripture and uh, normally preparing something. Uh, but it's very, very colorful. Literally, it is girding up the loins of your mind. And of course, this is a picture of when there were robes and there were belts and you had to roll up the robe and tuck it in so that you had freedom of movement. And this is one thing that Peter loves doing. He loves taking Old Testament symbols and applying them to these new chosen elect believers. He may have even had the Exodus in mind. In Exodus 12, verse 11, it reads this, in this manner, you shall eat it. So this is Israel, God's people, about to be freed from Egypt, and they're going to have this Passover feet. With your belt fastened, that's actually our phrase right there, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. So what Peter probably has in mind here is a people who are geared up for an imminent event. Israel was in full preparation mode as they were waiting for that order to roll out of Egypt. Now, for us who are supposed to be fighting for our hope, preparing our minds, I wish it were as easy as, as putting together our you know, kit for a hike. Um, it's not as easy as grabbing our walking sticks because this happens in our mind. We're preparing our minds. And even then, I wish it were as easy as like downloading some information into our minds that we just have to be aware of. But the mind in Scripture is a lot more than our intellect, which is actually encouraging because a PhD in engineering, frankly, doesn't have a leg up on a first grader. Having your imagination infused with this new possibility, that's what we're working on. The mind is something that sometimes is very closely related to the biblical concept of the heart. And the heart is not the beating organ, so it's going, um, the heart is the seat of our will and our emotions. And so what we're doing here is preparing our emotions and our will and our intellect all together. Basically, what this is talking about is developing our inner life. It's preparing our inner life for hope. What that means is that we're going to have to work really hard as we prepare our inner life for hope. We have got to prepare our minds to have a conscious relationship with God. And this is a lifelong work. There are no shortcuts to it. Sometimes we call these the spiritual disciplines. The truth is that children can start it right now. And often old people are really, really formidable in this preparation. But there is no formula. This is the disciplines. What might that look like? 
Well, in a day, it may look like this. Taking time to actually still yourself before God. Be still and know that I am God. Now, if your life is like mine, your life is busy. You may have some margins. You may feel like you have zero margins. But you've got to find a place somewhere. I don't care if it's the shower or a stall. A place to still your mind before God and know that he is God. And just sit with him and wait and ask him to have, give you clean hearts and a pure mind, as we sang today. It means speaking to him in the watches of the night. Perhaps you're getting to that age where sleep flees from you and you wake up and you say, I'm going to commune with my creator. Waking up with a prayer that God's will be done in my life. Or as we saw in verse 3, praise be to the God. You may not be feeling it, but you wake up and you say, praise be to the God of the Father of my Lord Jesus Christ. As you walk out of the door and you go into your place of work or school, you say, God, you have laid out works for me to do today. Would you show them to me? As you walk out, you may not be feeling it, but you say, I am a son or a daughter of the king. Envision his face and then envision him telling you, I am glad that you are on this earth because he is. If you're a person who is preparing your inner life in that way, you're developing that relationship with God, and that is just like you're making consistent deposits, micro-deposits, all the time. That kind of person, if Jesus were to appear today, they would not say, oh, it's you. They would say, oh, it's you. I've been waiting. So preparing your inner life in a relationship with God is one aspect. The other aspect is called being sober-minded. If I asked you the opposite of drunk, most of you would say sober, right? And that's a pretty good starting place. Drunkenness is a pretty helpful illustration when we're thinking about being sober-minded. So being sober-minded is being alert, not dull. Precise, not sloppy. Intentional, not lacking discernment. You know, when you're drunk, you lose your balance. You lose your coordination. You lose your discernment. There is a way of life that we can live that dulls us to the spiritual, that throws us off balance, where we don't have coordination, where we don't have discernment. And that way of life, it may not even be sin. It may just be living your life in a way that doesn't even think about the spiritual. Drunkenness impairs our balance, but to be sober-minded is to live well-balanced. To be off-balanced in your life is to live only with one purpose, and that is fulfilling earthly desires. Now, again, it may not be bad things. It may be good food and a good job. It may be great things, but only living for those earthly desires, that is living a life off-balance. That is not being sober-minded. That is off-balanced balanced. What we're really talking about here is a worldview. We live as people who have a creator, and we live as creatures. We are eternal souls, and we have bodies, and so we have to live with both of those in mind. Of course we enjoy the food. Of course we enjoy our work. Of course we enjoy good things. You're supposed to. That's what it means to live as a creature before your creator. But we don't only live for those things. We constantly are saying, may Jesus Christ be praised. May our creator be
be praised. And so it is using the earthly to lay up treasure. It is using it to serve others. It is using it to say thank you to our creator. The spiritual realm in this way is never far from our mind. In fact, over in the Kids Connection, one of the things that we say is that we are God-centered. And part of what that means is we teach kids to thank God for yummy snacks. We thank God for goldfish. That's part of what it means to be God-centered. So together, a prepared mind that lives in a conscious relationship with God, making those micro-investments all day long, and a sober mind that keeps earthly desires in check, that becomes a person who is able to hope. So that persistent notification of that future event where I will see my Jesus, I will see that creator, he is coming for me, will not be far from your mind because you live that way. Your imagination is infused with the possibility of eternity. It means hope. What else? Verse 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So if hope tends to be a little bit nebulous and fuzzy to us, holiness can be distasteful to some, where you think of phrases like holy roller or holier than thou or self-righteousness, or just scary. If you take, a, if you take that and say, be holy as God is holy, that, that is a little bit terrifying. But thankfully, Peter fills this out for us. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I first just want to acknowledge this, that what we are doing, being called to here, is a call to reflect the very character of God. Sit with that for a second. To reflect the very character of God. We have a certain amount of authority on this earth. We do not have God's control. We do have his presence. His presence is with us, and he is saying that we are a way that he reflects his presence to this earth. And so we are to represent him, his character, in some way through being holy. You know, holiness usually has a set-apart kind of part to it. In other words, something is set aside for a purpose, and it normally has a set-apart-from sort of purpose, where normally that's sin or uncleanness. In this verse, it says, as children of God, as obedient children. So the thing that we are being set apart to is obedient children. We're supposed to reflect our dad, God. But we're also to be set apart. And Peter frames this mostly in the negative. We're not to be conformed to something. We generally understand what it means to be conformed. It means to get fit to some norm. Okay, We fit to some rule. Uh, if we forget, I'm learning that our teenagers will remind us of it. You can't go out like that, or please turn that down, somebody may hear. Um, so they're going to, sorry teens, just busting on you a little bit. Um, we adults are really good at this as well. We conform really, really well. But Peter says, don't conform. Don't conform to something. What? Look at the verse. Look at verse 14. Don't conform to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter says, you know the stuff that before God opened your eyes that you pursued without restraint? 
before you became aware of God, Christ, and the gospel, you remember that stuff? Don't conform to it. Don't let it mold you. Resist it. Now, I appreciate this because Peter is acknowledging that this is going to be a battle. Something is going to try to stuff you into the mold. And what it was is the passions that existed in us that led us to sin before we had our eyes opened. And so he says, you're in a battle. How do you know what those things are? Well, Scripture definitely tells us, but Peter actually gives us just kind of a guideline here. He says, you'll know. It marked your life before the Spirit opened your eyes when you lived your life unaware of God and did whatever you felt like. That's what he means by ignorance. You didn't know God. You didn't know Christ. You didn't know the gospel. You didn't know the gospel through Christ. Like, you didn't have the Spirit. Moral ignorance. And so, what guided you? Well, whatever was good for me. Whatever I wouldn't get in trouble for. I'd push it as far as I could get. This battle isn't limited to our minds or our homes. It spills out in conduct. He says, be as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all of your conduct. The arena is our conduct, and it's very, very public. Peter gives an exact quote from Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy for I am holy. The Israelite in the time of Leviticus, where that was being quoted, their life, their conduct was governed completely by this holiness code. And, I mean, it it went all the way from things that we would say, like, yeah, I get that. Like, you know, don't rob and kill your neighbor and and incest and that kind of thing. But it also went to uh, what kind of materials you could wear, how men could cut their beards, tattoos, like all kinds of things. Where some of them we look at and say, I don't see the sinfulness in that. There wasn't always sin involved. Sometimes it was just that people being unique and set apart from the nations around them. And so every aspect of their life was governed by this holiness code. Now, as we move into the New Testament, what we do not see is Peter applying this national code to these chosen exiles. What we do see him is urging us to reflect on our heritage as obedient children and to set ourselves apart from the time when our flesh ran the show. The Old and the New Testament both share something, though. Both of these were being called to God to reflect God's moral character. They just did it in different contexts with different audiences. Which, when you think about it, us being called to, like, what does it mean to look like to be holy in our context? It means to look at the character of your father and emulate it, and it means don't be conformed to when your flesh ran the show. Which is kind of, that's a lot more dynamic and all-pervasive than a list of a bunch of do's and don'ts, isn't it? That can just like, that can go all over your entire life, every single bit of it. It is a very, very dynamic thing. So we're going to be more like our father, obedient children, and less and less like our non-new birth selves. Do not be conformed. Being children of the Father, it means hope, it means holiness, and finally, it means reverence. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You said reverence. You say, I don't see reverence in that verse. It's the word fear. Now, English really struggles with that word. 
Um, if you have uh, various translations in here, you probably see that. In fact, most of them can't even use one word to translate one word. They have to use several words. Some of the phrases and words that are used are fear, reverent fear, reverence, reverent awe, honor, and reverently. I'd like to try to illustrate this. In, in October, um, I walked into the Leonard L. Williams Justice Center on North King Street in Wilmington, and there was an officer who was standing next to the security checkpoint with a sign that said, no cell phones. I took a deep breath. I meekly turned around, walked back to the parking garage, put my cell phone there, checked to make sure I didn't have my pocket knife on me, and then I came back. I nodded to the officer. Hello, sir. Have a good day. Went through the security thing, hoping that he wouldn't say anything, because badges make me nervous sometimes, and uh, I made it through. I went upstairs, and a few minutes later, I was speaking to a lady behind a plexiglass, um, you know, bulletproof flex plexiglass thing, and I called her, you know, hello, ma'am, how are you doing? Is it, do I have what you need? I mean, very, very respectful, because I knew she knew more about these papers than I knew about these papers, and that she could make my life really miserable. A few weeks later, I was on the phone with my wife, and I was speaking to a judge. And I called her your honor, because number one, it's kind of cool to be talking to a judge. But number two, she's a judge. And I knew that she was going to tell me in just a moment whether or not I had guardianship of my adult son or not. And so I knew that she had power. Now, was I terrified of these people? No, I was not terrified of these people. Did I respect them and feel a little bit of, of awe at the power that they held over me? Yes, indeed, I did. We reverence God. We fear God. The verse says, if you call on him as father. Well, part of fear is recognizing that he is our father. We were born of his initiative, as we saw in verse 3. He is worthy of obedience. We are called obedient children. And, and so here it says, since it's true that you call on him as father. I think it's kind of amazing that fear actually has a, a very, very intimate relationship. You know, the fact that he gave us life should be something that causes us to have some awe. You know, maybe your, your dad used to joke, um, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. Well, you know, uh, that's tongue in cheek, but it's just a recognition that we owe something to our fathers. A child of God relationship is a key part of the reverence. We are aware that we have a deep privilege of calling the God of the universe who created us Father. That alone should move us to awe, but there's more. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Well, what's clear here is that our intimate relationship with the Father doesn't give us license to just take him for granted because he is also the Father who judges impartially, which means that he treats everybody. The verse says each one according to the same standard, Christian, non-Christian alike. It doesn't matter where you live, who you are, when you live, you will be judged by the same standard. The standard, according to verse 17, is one's deeds. We will be judged in some regard for our life, for our work, for our deeds. Now, this is where it would be really, really easy to shift 
from godly reverence and fear to absolute terror because who can stand before that? I'm going to go on a slight detour here, but I think it's one worth taking. When we stand before God, we who give a verbal confession that Jesus is Lord, um, I want to know what happens when we do that. We would say that Jesus is the one who declared us right before God with the merit of Christ. What happens when we are judged impartially according to our deeds, as this verse says we will be. First of all, I do not believe that our sins will be displayed. Verse 19, that we're not going to consider at length, but was read for us today, refers to our ransom with the precious blood of Christ. Now that is a reference to the Passover, um, which... That is a reference to the time where like the final sacrifice covered those sins. Romans 3, 24 and 25 also speaks at length of the application of that blood which covers our sins permanently. Not a temporary sacrifice, but a permanent one. And it says it soothes the wrath of God. And so I do not believe that we will see those sins on that day. Yet, we must harmonize the truths that we will be declared righteous before God with these plain words that the impartial judge judges us according to our deeds. Here is where I think it goes. It's not the sins, but the faithfulness of the saints that will be displayed. Their deeds, their works will be displayed. These will be the works that were supposedly done in the name of Christ. They will be displayed, but not as the basis of our acceptance, but to show the reality of our faith in the Savior. Now, for somebody who verbally says, I am calling upon the name of Christ, there are going to be three possibilities that we have to take very, very seriously. The first one is the possibility that there is a hypocritical confession. Matthew 7, 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These were people that were doing things in Christ's name. They said they were casting out demons. They were doing amazing works in his name. Yet, Jesus said, I did not know you. Now, I will call to mind what we said about developing that inner life. I believe that a person who is developing that inner life, who calls upon God as Father, who trusts in Jesus to take away their sins, who is like, is reaching out, I believe that as a person who knows God and they will not be the person facing this. But there could be somebody who thinks just by associating with God's people and doing the stuff that God could say, I never knew you. And that is a fearful thing. So the possibility of a hypocritical confession. The second result here, the second outcome, could be a prideful ministry that is, for, is winnowed. Paul says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved not only as through fire, but only as through fire. So here we have somebody who has some of their deeds burned up but that person is saved. And so we have a person who professes Christ, 
who is saved, but they have some deeds burned up. Now, Paul was speaking about people who, he says, didn't build their works on the foundations of Christ. In other words, they were, they were trying to draw people into some sort of new law while professing Christ. Now, I don't know exactly how all that works out, but I do know Paul in um, Philippians 1, uh, he talks about some people who preach out of selfish ambition. They tried to step into the spotlight that Paul had vacated by being in, in jail. And so they were doing it for selfish ambition. I think that may give us a hint to what is happening here. There are works that you and I do not for God's glory, but we do it for our own ambition. Those types of works will be burned up, though we will be saved. Then finally, there are works that are done for Christ that will be rewarded. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. I believe that these works are not just for super spiritual Christians. I believe that we will be stunned at the things that God puts on our account. Every deed that we do, every time we die to ourselves, every time we serve others, every time, Mama, you get up at night and you, you hold that sleeping, that crying baby, for Christ's sake, to raise up a generation, this will go to your account. I think we will be absolutely shocked. I think that my grandma Genovese is going to be a rich, rich saint. But she lived a very, very common life, raised two girls that loved the Lord, taught her grandson how to pray. I think that she is going to be a very, very rich woman in heaven. Only this understanding, I, I, I hesitated to go here because this, this is heavy stuff. It really is. But only this understanding actually makes sense of when Peter says that we need to conduct ourselves with fear. Because guys, if our conduct for Christ does not matter in any way, if it doesn't matter if I'm a couch potato for Christ and I spend my life serving myself or going to the mission field, if it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. And I really do not believe that. So one ditch is just saying like, hey, grace covers it all. It really doesn't matter. And the other ditch is saying that I somehow contribute to my salvation. Our works are displayed, not as a basis of acceptance, but to show the reality of our faith. It does matter. And this is why Peter says in the latter part of that verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, what does that conduct look like? This is one instance where I found that the historical context really actually helped me. You know, we all tend to think that our, you know, our society is as advanced as it will ever be or it's as evil as it will ever be. But um, missiologists, one of them, his name is Roland Allen, he wrote about the, the context in which Peter and Paul were living. And actually, a lot of it sounds very similar to ours. They were highly educated they were civilized, there was technology, there was philosophy, there was religion, but it was a society that had four different things that deeply, deeply defiled it. One of those was devil worship. Uh, there were things done in the temples that were just disgusting beyond all words. There were religious rites that just permeated the society that, that, that degraded everything. There, was, uh, there were arena games. So we're not just talking violence on a screen, we're talking about actual brutality. 
and there was slavery, which was so universally accepted, it was not even considered to be an issue. And so it dominated that society. Well, you look at that and say, like, well, that sounds pretty bad. It was. So to have their conduct shaped by a reverent fear for these chosen exiles that we're being written to here would be to some way engage with those things, that moral decay in a way that held back the decay. And so I would imagine that that would look like opposing the games, not going to that entertainment, um, changing the, the relationship of master and slave, uh, not going to the temple rites, not having the violence, being careful with the immorality, like all of those things. That's what it looked like to conduct yourselves with fear. And as I thought about this, I thought like, you know, with a little thought and discernment, it would not be real hard to think about how we could navigate a society that also is showing similar signs of moral decay. And we do so because we love our father, who is also an impersonal judge, or an impartial judge. But what's amazing is that we are not left to make this navigation without resources, are we? Because verses 1 through 12 talked about uh, the, the word, the revelation that was given that the prophets wanted to see and the angels are gazing on. We have that word made more sure. And that is a resource that we have. We have the Holy Spirit, which empowers us. We have community, which encourages us. So we are not left to do this, this alone. So I would like to conclude with just some ideas of what hope and holiness and reverence might look like um, in a daily life. Now, every child of the Father's day is different. We acknowledge that. Uh, but perhaps we all share some of the same challenges. Let's just say it's 7 o'clock in the morning. You're tired. You don't feel like you have anything to look forward to. Maybe your, your kids are struggling and not doing well. Maybe you're not happy with your job. Maybe you've got some assignment that you absolutely dread. Maybe you're in pain and you have a procedure scheduled and you're having a hard time with insurance. So all of these things are happening and it just makes you feel bleak and hopeless. Yet, you call to mind that you have a father who knows your name and you call upon his name. You picture his face. You remind yourself that he knows you, that he loves you, that he has good works for you that he is pleased that you are on this earth. And you say, God, today, help me watch how you are at work as I go out in these things that are causing me no hope. You ask him to show you evidences of the fact that he is in control and his presence is with you. It's 10.30. You feel the pull to conform to some unrestrained passion that you used to have. Maybe you have in mind to absolutely roast a classmate or disrespect the teacher. Maybe you're just going to let the customer service person on the other end of the line really know what you think of them. But then you remind yourself that words are to be used to build up and you realize that a fool utters all his mind and you restrain. Maybe, teenagers, you're tempted to, you're tempted to enter the banter that's in the hallway to, to boast, to put people down, to rip people down, to swear at them, but instead you encourage the person who's bearing the brunt of it. And this just goes in all areas. You battle procrastination. You battle cheating. You battle your laziness. You don't steal. You don't take that second and third drink to dull whatever awfulness you're feeling. You don't follow the passions of your lusts that were before you knew Jesus. 
it's nine o'clock, you can finally relax. You just kind of sit down, you're gonna watch a few shows, and, and gradually it begins to dawn on you that this programming isn't the cleanest. In fact, it begins to make you feel uncomfortable, or you think, like, I probably should feel uncomfortable. You recognize some of the elements. Okay, actually make that, you recognize a lot of the elements of moral decay that is in our society. And at first you say, listen, exposure to these things does not make me unholy. And so you begin to like run it through the grid, like, yes, I understand, that's not true. Yeah, that's not honest. Yeah, that's not lovely. I, I, I get it. But after a while, you think like, you know what? Um, I think that my father is going to judge this stuff, and I'm using it to entertain myself. And so you switch it off, knowing that it would be better to be better rested, so you'll hope better tomorrow than to continue. And so it goes. 24-7, 365 times 700 people who call Ogletown home. This is the work that we do, being children of the Father. I'm going to pray that God is with us as we work that out. Let's pray. Father, I am asking that we would prepare our minds for action that we would learn what it means to live in self-conscious relationship with you. Lord, I pray that we would be well-balanced, that we would be joyful creatures living before our creator. I pray that we would set our hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have so much to look forward to. Lord, I pray that you would do whatever necessary to jar us awake to that reality, to keep that before us. Father, I pray that you would take our imaginations and help us to, to just really think about it, that we'd be drawn into the amazing things that you have laid in store to us. And Lord, I pray that you would keep us to be a holy people before you. Help us to learn what that means. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this community. Thank you that we are children of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.